Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. In 86 BC, King Tigranes II of Armenia was 54. As mentioned last episode, he'd spent 24 years as a Parthian captive before being installed as a vassal king in 95 BC. But that was never how Tigranes saw himself. He was the great-grandson of Artaxes I, the satrap of Antiochus the Great who'd founded an Armenian dynasty. And Artaxes's line went back even further, to the Arontid kings who'd ruled the region in the time of Cyrus the Great. Back in 94 BC, the year after he'd been installed, Tigranes II had allied himself with Mithridates VI of Pontus by marrying his daughter, Cleopatra. Then he'd begun to expand. Strabo records that Artanes, the king of neighboring Sophene, was overcome by Tigranes, who established himself as lord of all. Sophene was an opportune choice. North and west would have brought conflict with Rome, and the same with Parthia to the east and south. But now, with Rome expelled from Anatolia and Mithridates of Parthia dead, the path was clear to make much bolder moves. According to Strabo, after taking back the 70 valleys previously claimed by the Parthians, Tigranes devastated the Parthians' country, both that around Nineveh and that around Arbella, and he subjugated to himself the rulers of Atropatine and Gordyene, and along with these, the rest of Mesopotamia. Atropatine and Gordyene were Parthian kingdoms on Armenia's southern border. At some point, the Atropatine king, another Mithridates, married Tigranes II's daughter, so that was likely more negotiation than conquest. Gordyene, on the other hand, had a reputation for fierce independence. Even after his military defeat, its king, Zarbianus, remained a reluctant vassal. Next up was neighboring Azarwini, which likely submitted without a fight, taking Tigranes in a very short time right up to the borders of Syria. In nearby Antioch, King Philip I was apparently unconcerned, because in the midst of Tigranes' menacing moves, Philip decided to leave the capital and head on down to Damascus. I mean, it wasn't a spa day, 
His brother, King Antiochus XII, did need some help. But ignoring Tigranes in the rearview mirror takes some pretty serious cojones. The situation was this. The last remaining sons of Grepus, Philip I and Antiochus XII, were ruling the north and south, respectively. Once he'd been installed in Damascus, Antiochus had continued the policy of his father and brother by minting coins showing Syrian gods. In his case, the storm god Hadad. In an apparent bow to local conservatism, he'd even expelled a few Greek philosophers, supposedly for the age-old crime of corrupting the youth. More practically, Antiochus had dug a trench in a local valley, which Josephus calls the Trench of Antiochus, as a defensive measure against Nabataean expansion. With their recent defeat of King Janaeus and the ensuing Judean civil war, the Nabataeans had become the major power in the south. And in pretty short order, Antiochus Twelfth had decided to campaign against them. Historian John D. Granger notes that while he was away, it was clearly necessary for someone to defend Damascus against a possible Aturian attack, which explains Philip's journey down south. But the Nabataean king, Obodas I, easily drove Antiochus off, after which he returned to Damascus and Philip went back to Antioch. Philip's gamble had apparently paid off, since Tigranes hadn't crossed the Euphrates. Though it was pretty ominous that he'd taken the title of King of Kings, the first ruler to do so since Mithridates II of Parthia. Tigranes even took things up a notch by never again appearing in public without four vassal kings attending him. Meanwhile, up in Anatolia, Mithridates of Pontus had taken his war against Rome across the Bosphorus into Greece. But a series of victories by Roman generals finally forced his surrender. The senior commander, Sulla, was eager to get back to Rome and gave Mithridates easy terms. Surrender conquered territories and pay a large tribute, and he could keep the kingdom of Pontus. The following year, 84 BC, the Syrian co-king Antiochus XII made a second Nabataean campaign. This one may have been opportunistic, since Obodas I had recently died and been succeeded by his brother, Aretas III. On this occasion, Antiochus took a less direct route to attack the capital of Petra. As he crossed their territory, the Judeans tried to halt his advance. But his mercenary army of 8,000 foot and 800 horse blew past them without much problem. According to Josephus, the Nabataean king Aretas III at first retreated, but afterward appeared with 10,000 horsemen. Even so, Josephus reports that Antiochus kept his troops in good order and was well on his way to winning the battle. But when he had gotten the victory and was bringing some auxiliaries to that part of his army that was in distress, he was slain. 
On the death of King Antiochus XII, his army fled to a nearby village, where they were trapped and perished by famine. The Damascenes quickly did the math and invited Aretas to rule them, which is how the Nabataeans gained control of Damascus. According to Josephus, this had mainly been done to forestall an invasion by the Aturian king Ptolemy Menaeus, whom the Damascenes hated and feared. Either way, it was a serious loss for King Philip I, who had little to show but four dead brothers and an ever-diminishing kingdom. If the gods had even a thimble of mercy, you know what he could have done without? Another Syrian rival. The instigator was Queen Cleopatra Selene, secure in Ptolemaeus Acco. Once she learned that Antiochus was dead, she promoted one of her sons by Antiochus X as the new Seleucid king. According to the latest evidence, the one she chose was Seleucus VII, who was likely younger than ten. Was he well-respected? Well, let's just say his nickname was Kybiosoctes, which roughly translates to the foul-smelling work of cutting tuna fish. So I'm going to call that a no. With Philip's loss of control in the south, Selene and Fishboy saw an opportunity to extend their sphere of control. Not, you know, a lot, since the Phoenician cities remained independent and the Judeans and Nabataeans held most of the rest. But still, I've got to give Selene some credit for not just fading away. She even had a backup plan a second son up in Roman Asia, called Antiochus XIII Asiaticus. The following year, 83 BC, a Roman general began the prodding that, in 82, led to a second war with Mithridates, one that ended in 81 with another effective stalemate. The Armenian king Tigranes II had managed to sit out both these conflicts. As he saw it, his alliance with Pontus was to protect their flanks while they conquered in different directions. That same year, 81 BC, the pharaoh Chickpea finally died at the age of 62, which, shocker, led to a series of murders and power grabs that left no clear successor. But Chickpea had two illegitimate sons— currently in the court of Mithridates of Pontus, who were recalled and installed as the kings of Egypt and Cyprus. The older brother was crowned as the pharaoh Ptolemy XII Aulates, apparently because he liked to play the flute. But he's much better known as the father of the legendary queen Cleopatra. Moving into the 70s BC is a good time to take the lay of the land as seen from King Philip's perspective. To the north and west were Pontus, still ruled by Mithridates, and the client kings of the Roman Republic, who were all currently at peace. To the north and east was the Armenian Empire of Tigranes II, which at least kept the Parthians out of the picture. To the south were Judea and Nabataea, and beyond them Egypt ruled by a pharaoh sympathetic to Mithridates. 
Meanwhile, in southern Syria, the new king Fishboy and his mom Selene were a constant low-level threat. Actually, there was one more territory. Just north of Syria, on the west bank of the Euphrates, sat the kingdom of Comagene. It was currently ruled by yet another Mithridates, King Mithridates I Callinicus, which means beautiful victor, though I'm not quite sure who he'd actually fought. More to the point, his queen Laodice was Grebus's only daughter, making her the sister of King Philip I of Syria. So, Comagene was allied with Syria and bordered on both Cappadocia, still ruled by Ario Barzanes, and on Tigranes II's Armenia, which was kind of the definition of a vulnerable spot. And when Tigranes moved west in 78, Comagene quickly surrendered. Lucky for them, he was just passing through. Tigranes' real targets were Cappadocia and Cilicia, which he proceeded to brutally conquer. While Ario Barzanis fled to Rome, Tigranes carried off 300,000 people to populate his newly built capital of Tigranocerta. Now, the whole idea of seizing this territory was the brainchild of Mithridates of Pontus, who now had a fully committed ally in his ongoing conflict with Rome. The capture of Cilicia cost the Seleucids a sizable chunk of their remaining territory, and left northern Syria completely surrounded by the greater Armenian Empire. To the south, Judea had gone on the offensive and captured some cities across the Jordan, though notably none held by the Nabataeans. According to Josephus, the Judean king and high priest Alexander Janaeus fell into distemper by hard drinking, even while still going out on campaign. Finally, in 76 BC, he was quite spent with the labors he had undergone and died beyond the Jordan. Janaeus was succeeded by his wife, Queen Salome Alexandra, who installed their son as the high priest Hyrcanus II. Josephus records that Salome took care of the affairs of the kingdom, and got together a great body of mercenary soldiers, and increased her own army to such a degree that she became terrible to the neighboring tyrants. Salome was the first queen to rule Judea in well over 700 years, and is widely praised in the ancient sources. She'd also be the last to die as ruler of an independent kingdom. In 75 BC, after reigning for 12 years, King Philip I finally died, which left the Antiochenes the difficult challenge of trying to pick a successor. There was Philip's underage son, Philip II. There was Queen Selene's son, Fishboy, sorry, Seleucus VII, who'd been king in the south for around nine years. Or there was Selene's presumably better-smelling son, Antiochus XIII Asiaticus. But for the first time in a long, long time, the Antiochenes were ready for some actual change. How about someone who wouldn't keep tearing Syria apart with petty, destructive civil wars? How about 
to put it bluntly, someone a little less lucid. In the end, they rolled the dice and picked Tigranes II. Technically, they only invited him to rule Antioch. But it was pretty clear that once he had the capital, the rest of Syria would follow. Down in Ptolemais, the 60-year-old Queen Cleopatra Selene was likely incandescent with fury. She had two completely legitimate sons, both great-grandsons of Antiochus VII, and the Antiochenes were giving the keys to the kingdom to some jumped-up Armenian nobody? Luckily, she also had a plan. Tigranes II was an ally of Pontus, and both were now bitter enemies of Rome. So maybe the Romans would prefer a more loyal alternative? Selene actually went further. Since the new pharaoh Ptolemy Aulates was also sympathetic to Pontus, maybe the Romans had liked to place both her sons on the thrones of Syria and Egypt. After all, Selene was the daughter of Ptolemy Physcon, so they both had pretty good claims. In 75 BC, the boys packed up their pedigrees, a few rehearsed speeches, and some lavish donations, and left Ptolemaeus for Rome. As a consequence, the only real Seleucid remaining in Syria was Queen Cleopatra Selene. The boys had hardly sailed west before Tigranes dispatched his viceroy Magadates to take control of Antioch. As Granger describes Tigranes as M.O., he was less a governing and ruling king than a collector of other kingdoms, who typically left local kings in power and governments undisturbed. All he required was submission, general obedience, tax contributions, and no interference in his larger plans. Over the next two years, Magadatis used persuasion, backed by military force, to capture northern Syria. In 73, the sons of Selene arrived back at Ptolemaeus, with some good news and some bad news. While the Senate had denied their claims to Egypt, they were confirmed as kings of Syria. Which didn't mean Rome had helped them out, but at least they had its blessing. According to Justin, King Antiochus XIII went up to Cilicia to fight a guerrilla war against Tigranes. His brother, King Seleucus VII, remained behind in Ptolemaeus. By 73, the Romans were back at war with Mithridates. This time, the spark was the death, in 74, of King Nicomedes IV of Bithynia, who'd followed the growing popular trend of willing his kingdom to Rome. In response, Mithridates had invaded Bithynia with a massive force, defeated a Roman consular army, captured several major cities, and besieged the port of Cyzicus. Eventually, famine, plague, and the skill of the Roman general Lucullus forced Mithridates to retreat to Pontus. While Lucullus marched east in pursuit of Mithridates, Tigranes II continued his conquest of southern Syria. 
By 72, the Nabataeans had withdrawn from Damascus, and after a brief period of conflict with the Judeans, the Eturians under Ptolemy Menaeus had finally captured the city. Just in time for Tigranes to arrive on his doorstep. Once he showed up, Ptolemy immediately surrendered Damascus and adopted the role of client king. This left two main Syrian holdouts, Judea under Queen Salome Alexandra and Ptolemaeus under Queen Cleopatra Selene. Josephus reports that Salome sent Tigranes ambassadors and gifts and hoped that he would determine nothing that was severe about their queen or nation, which was probably the wisest choice. But Cleopatra Selene, well, she wasn't the gift-giving kind. Instead, she bolted the gates of Ptolemaeus and went all Molon Labe. Her son, King Seleucus VII, a.k.a. Fishboy, very likely fled the city before the siege began. But in 69, when Ptolemaeus fell, Selene was still inside. The 66-year-old Ptolemaic queen and widow and mother of Seleucid kings was taken captive, put in chains, and dragged before King Tigranes. Now, Tigranes himself was 71, and though he'd gotten a late start, he'd clearly made up for lost time. At this point, as Appian notes, he had control of all Syrian territories right up to the border with Egypt with only the Nabataeans standing between him and total victory. But just when his triumph was nearly complete, the fates threw Tigranes a curveball. The same year, 69 BC, Mithridates had been driven from Pontus and forced to seek refuge in Armenia. Meanwhile, Lucullus and his colleagues had secured all of Anatolia, including Pontus, for Rome. After Tigranes had refused to hand over Mithridates, Lucullus had invaded Armenia directly and defeated Tigranes' general, Mithrobarzanes. Down in Syria, according to Josephus, news came to Tigranes that Lucullus, in his pursuit of Mithridates, was laying waste Armenia and besieging its cities, including his brand new showpiece of Tigranocerta. On hearing the news, Tigranes prepared to march back north. But he also decided that, in revenge for her defiance, Queen Cleopatra Selene was coming with him. According to Strabo, Selene was imprisoned in the city of Zugma and sometime later killed. And to me, whenever that happened, the Seleucid Empire fell. Tigranes returned to Tigranocerta to find Lucullus besieging the city. In the ensuing battle, Tigranes' forces outnumbered the Romans two to one, including thousands of Armenian cataphracts. But Lucullus managed to outflank the cataphracts and destroy the rest of the army. Tigranes fled north to the old Armenian capital of Artaxata, leaving the Romans in control of the south. But his dreams of a greater Armenian empire died on the field with his troops. At roughly the same time, out of the blue, a new figure entered the stage. 
According to Appian, Antiochus entered Syria clandestinely and assumed the government with the consent of the people. Nor did Lucullus object to Antiochus exercising his ancestral authority. Which meant, surprise, Syria once again had a Seleucid king, the now 20-something King Antiochus XIII Asiaticus. Confirmed as legitimate by the Roman Senate and given a wink by Lucullus, he likely felt his reign was secure. And once the Romans defeated Mithridates and pulled back west, it'd be back to business as usual. In 68 and 67, the Romans kept up the regional pressure. But somewhat surprisingly, they suffered a series of reverses. In a miraculous comeback, Mithridates won a few critical victories and managed to regain control of Pontus, while Tigranes remained secure in Artaxata. Their joint nemesis, the Roman general Lucullus, was undermined by a political rival, who, in 66 BC, was given command of the East. His name, as you may have guessed, was Pompey the Great. Pompey's victory at the Battle of the Lycus expelled Mithridates from Pontus. Denied entry into Armenia by Tigranes, who didn't want to upset the Romans, Mithridates fled north to the Sumerian Bosporus. Once installed there, he cooked up plans to invade Italy by way of the Danube. But at 70 years old, his energies were clearly diminished. A few years later, with the locals rebelling against his rule, he tried and failed to poison himself, then had his own bodyguard kill him. Back in 66, after driving Mithridates from Pontus, Pompey moved into Armenia. He quickly gained the submission of the 74-year-old King Tigranes II, whom he apparently respected and allowed to keep his throne. In fact, Tigranes had continued ruling for another decade before finally dying in 55 BC at the age of 85. After Armenia, Pompey turned his gaze south to the fractious lands of Syria and Judea. Rome didn't consider them particularly important, but it was important to have them quiet to protect Roman holdings in Anatolia. And the easiest way to keep them quiet was to annex Syria as a Roman province and install a vassal in Judea. The latter took the form of Antipater I, founder of the Herodian dynasty. But the very first step in doing the former was killing off the Seleucids. According to Appian, Pompey expelled Antiochus XIII from the government of Syria although he had done the Romans no wrong. Pompey's rationale was that it was unseemly for the Seleucidae, whom Tigranes had dethroned, to govern Syria, rather than the Romans, who had conquered Tigranes. But dethronement was only the start. In 64 BC, at Pompey's request, the Emocene phylarch Samsigerimus kidnapped Antiochus XIII, then killed him. For his service to Rome, Pompey installed Samsigerimus as a local client king. 
King Antiochus XIII was technically the last Seleucid to rule in Syria. But he wasn't the end of the line. On the heels of his murder, the remaining princes thought it wise to seek their fortunes elsewhere. The main question was where to go. If they wanted to stay somewhat Macedonian and go someplace Rome didn't control, there were really only two options. They could transit a hostile Mesopotamia, Media, and Bactria, make their way to the Indian Punjab, and join the courts of the Indo-Greek kings. Or they could make the far more sensible choice and flee to Ptolemaic Egypt. Which is apparently where Seleucus VII, a.k.a. Fishboy, and Philip II, the now-of-age son of Philip I, both eventually ended up. Moving into the 50s BC, the Egyptian pharaoh Ptolemy Aulates was only clinging to power on the strength of Roman loans, doled out by the brand new triumvirate of Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. In 58, Aulates was forced into exile along with his daughter, the 11 year old Cleopatra. Yes, that Cleopatra while his older daughters, Tryphena and Berenice, took control of the kingdom. Sometime this same year, Berenice apparently married the ex-Seleucid king, Seleucus VII, a.k.a. Fishboy, though probably now closer to a full-grown fish man. And a few months later, Berenice had him killed, supposedly for his lack of manners. When Tryphena died the following year, Berenice became sole ruler of Egypt. Swooping in for her prospective hand was the dashing young Philip II, likely now somewhere in his 20s. But swooping in equally fast was the new Roman proconsul of Syria, Aulus Gabinius. To support the exiled pharaoh Aulates, Gabinius ordered the marriage quashed and likely had Philip killed. And that's it. With a few shadowy, barely documented murders, the Seleucid Empire was gone. All that was left was its legacy, which I want to talk about from a few different perspectives, so maybe find a comfortable chair. First off, while counterfactuals are fun, it's hard to picture any scenario where the Seleucids don't end up being dismembered by Rome and Parthia. Under Antiochus III and Antiochus VII, relatively weak versions of Rome and Parthia, respectively, confronted Seleucid kings at the height of their powers. And even in those cases, the Seleucids invariably lost. That said, the usurpation of Antiochus IV and ensuing century of civil wars certainly didn't help. But even if their end was preordained, it doesn't diminish their impact. Over the two and a half centuries they ruled, the Seleucids obviously promoted Hellenic culture through forms of government, coinage, philosophy, gods, architecture, and in countless other ways— from the Bosporus to India to the Persian Gulf. Aspects of the culture be adopted and spread by their direct successors, including the Kushan Empire, the Parthian Empire, and Rome. 
but the transfer was hardly one way. One example was the Eastern concept of great king or king of kings. The title harkened all the way back to Sargon of Akkad in the 24th century BC and passed down through various Near Eastern rulers right down to the Achaemenid Persians. The title denoted a universal kingship that acknowledged no living equals. In a practical sense, it also described both the ruler of a multi-ethnic empire and a king ruling over vassal kings. And it's no coincidence that the first Seleucid ruler to call himself the Great was King Antiochus III. Antiochus began a Seleucid policy of permitting rule by vassal kings in places like Armenia, Parthia, and Bactria, as long as they submitted to Seleucid authority. Half a century later, Antiochus Sedetes continued the policy, calling himself the Great once he'd driven the Parthians from Babylonia and received the submission of local kings. As historian Rolf Strutman describes it, the universal kingship of the Seleucids, like those of earlier empires, was relentlessly expansionist and never acknowledged static borders, just practical limits of control. In periods of Seleucid weakness, others claimed the title. First the Bactrians under Eucrates, then the Parthians under Mithridates I and II, then Mithridates VI of Pontus and Tigranes II of Armenia. Once the Seleucids were gone, the mantle was seized by those claiming to be their rightful successors, including the great king Antiochus I Theos of Comagene. Theos was the son of Queen Laodice, sister of the Seleucid king Philip I, so his claim was pretty straightforward. In fact, he was likely named after his grandfather, Antiochus VIII Grepus. Though his kingdom was small and had no vassals, that didn't limit his pretensions. If you need proof, just take a look at his astounding monumental temple tomb complex atop Mount Nemrut in Turkey. Theos reinforced his claim by also emphasizing his Persian ancestry, stretching all the way back to Darius I. So, the memory of the Seleucids definitely endured. But even today, there's a lot of debate about just what the empire was. Was it a textbook case of Hellenic imperialism, or was it just a successor of the Achaemenid Persian Empire? I tend to agree with those who argue the Seleucids were, basically, their own unique thing. Part Greek, part Near Eastern, part traditional, part syncretic, part something entirely new which is kind of the broad view. But on a visceral level, what's always intrigued me about the Seleucids is their incredible restless energy. Whether driven by honor, legacy, ambition, power, prestige, wealth, or revenge, anyone with a drop of Seleucid blood was going to take their shot. At their best, they were the most faithful heirs of Alexander's legacy with all the baggage that implies. But at their worst, well, they rivaled the worst of what's going on in Syria today. After the Seleucids left the stage, Syria became a Roman province, and 
Given the time and place of our story, I'd feel remiss if I didn't touch on a bit more history. Three years after Philip II's murder, the Roman triumvir Marcus Crassus used his post as Syrian governor to launch an invasion of Parthia. After refusing the help of the Armenian king Artavasdes II, the son of Tigranes II, Crassus was defeated and killed by the Parthians at Carai, or Haran, near Edessa, the same place where Caracalla, centuries later, would be knifed in a roadside ditch. The civil war between the survivors, Caesar and Pompey, ended with Pompey's flight to Egypt in 48 BC. At the time, a civil war was also raging between the children of the pharaoh Ptolemy Aulates, his son Ptolemy XIII, and his daughter, the famous Cleopatra. Pompey's murder by Ptolemy XIII enraged Caesar, who helped Cleopatra take the throne, then fathered her son, Caesarion. After Caesar's murder in 44, and the death of his assassins in 42, control of the East, including Syria, fell to his ally, Mark Antony. In 41, Antony was hosted by Queen Cleopatra on her royal barge at Tarsus, then wintered with her in Alexandria. The very tangible result of his stay was the birth of twins the following year. For the girl, Cleopatra chose a name intended to appeal to her future subjects in Coel Syria, the name of the last great Seleucid queen, Cleopatra Selene. She named the boy Alexander, after the great, and Helios, a son to her daughter's moon. Selene would be raised in Alexandria, largely oblivious to the seismic events reshaping the Roman world. When she was three, her mother took her north to Antioch, where she met her father for the very first time. Mark Antony was at the height of his powers, preparing his own invasion of Parthia, and must have seemed a giant of a man, especially to the young Selene. But if you were to ask Selene later in life what she recalled as her earliest memory, I'd have to say it was probably the triumph. Mm-hmm. 